What is up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. My name is Ben Hilsinger, and this week's guest is Griffin Goldsmith, drummer for the band Dawes. Griffin was on the show about two and a half years ago, and one of his choices has become one of my favorite drum performances of all time. I won't tell you which one it is, but I'm pretty sure you'll be able to tell when it happens. Anyways, I've been lucky enough to see Griffin perform a few times in person in LA this last month, and he is quickly becoming one of my favorite drummers of all time. I know I throw that word favorite around a lot, but I mean it every time. Also, uh, Dawes just released a 10th anniversary deluxe edition of their album Stories Don't End on limited edition Stormcloud vinyl with remixed and remastered songs and six bonus tracks. You can check out all of that and all their other offerings at DawesTheBand.com. I also just wanted to rework this episode, and even if you've heard this episode before, check it out again. I learned even more editing it the second time, and I will say I know that at some points it sounds like Griff is hanging out in a construction zone, but it's fine. Anyways, let's talk about Griff as a drummer. In addition to Dawes, he's also worked with countless artists such as Jackson Brown, John Fogarty, Robbie Robertson, Jim Keltner, Elvis Costello, Sharon Von Etten, Angel Olsen, Jenny Lewis, and the list goes on and on. And he's recently added film scoring to his list of accomplishments. His delicate and deliberate touch is timeless and honors the gold standard of what it means to be a studio musician. Conversations like this are why I get so excited every week to talk to my favorite drummers favorite drummers again anyways griff's choices are sourced from the apex of human artistry behind the kit and i know you'll all be better drummers after hearing what he has to say so please enjoy my conversation with griffin goldsmith and please go down a rabbit hole of his playing not only with the whole dawes catalog but all the artists i just mentioned i can't stress enough how underrated he is and also a quick note this is back when i was giving each guest a specific set of prompts for each choice we ventured away from that recently we, it's just me. I ventured away from that recently because I felt like it kind of limits their story they want to tell, but I think it's just fine with this conversation. So we get into it right off the bat, so buckle up. And while I don't do the best at naming every song I play, it's been three years, okay? I swear I've gotten better, but I listed them all in the show notes. So I love you. Bye. Cheers. Up the prisons, send all your critics there. You seem willing and able, and used to get in your way. So, number one, a specific groove that completely changed the way you think about drums. And I'm gonna play it before we talk about it, just so we can have a little a little play along game to see if people can figure out who it is. I have a feeling you'll probably be able to. About the good thing, about the bad thing, about the right thing, 
I sadly don't know who's playing drums on that because a lot of that stuff isn't like catalog. But I mean, my guess is Stubblefield. Yeah, I mean that was the fight. that was really young when I got into that record. My dad was raised on Little Richard and James Brown, and I was probably like before I even played drums, honestly. And it just always blew my mind like what was happening there because I'd never I'd heard people play six eight. I'd heard people play straighter eighth notes and i just said i don't think i'd ever heard that like in between thing that's a pretty exaggerated version of that i mean looking back knowing how young you were when you started to like that do you think like why did a young griffin gravitate towards this thing that is so nuanced you know no man i mean part of me think like sometimes i think back on like when i started listening to steely dan because that was like a huge part of my childhood too and I look back and wonder at the fact that when I was listening to, you know, Bacaro, Keltner, Hal Blaine, Purdy, Rick Murata, all those guys on those records, that I understood that that was session drumming at its prime. I think it's pretty mm-hmm. evident now for anybody that cares to listen, but I kind of just intuited that at that age, that that was like the shit, and I got what was so hip about it. All right, so number two is Little Milton from the Stax Profiles Records, and the song is Let Me Down Easy, and this is one of the coolest, most badass fills I've ever heard. So I don't know the drummer, but when I find out, I'm definitely going down the rabbit hole. It's so good. And then, so I didn't start it early enough, but he's, go, I mean, it's just chilling. And I kind of started it while he's building up, but he builds it up and then just goes right back down. Yeah. And when he, and when the song starts, like the vocal is so loud and powerful and the drums are barely audible, but occasionally like they'll, they'll, they'll make a stab and it's like, it, it hurts. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, who, do you know who plays drums on that? I have no idea. I don't even think I've ever heard anyone play drums like that. So normally I could guess, but sure. Yeah, again, I, I always try and have like those facts, but sometimes it doesn't matter how, how you know deep you go on the internet these days. They just, people like that back then were not credited. And sadly, it's not. I mean, it's definitely gotten better, but it's not like there's still a lot of records being made that aren't crediting musicians. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you overuse stuff like that? Where like Taylor's like, okay, dude, we get it. You listen to Little Milton. Just let's calm down. <laughs> not that. I mean, I'm. I'm sure that's happened where there's like a Gad Phil or like some Yogi Horton shit that I'm like I was obsessed with. But in the context of a dog, like a three hour dog show, it's like you're we're kind of just all soloing the entire time. So it's yeah. like, how do you not play some shit that you played before? But I feel like in the studio and stuff, I try to not tread on old ground if possible. Mm hmm. All right. Well, speaking of your dad earlier, uh, number three is a performance which you either played or witnessed that altered your musical course. And you said growing up watching your dad play with Mike Finnegan and Gerald Johnson. What are the backstories with Mike Finnegan and Gerald Johnson? I'm actually not familiar, unfortunately. Is supposedly on some of um, Voodoo Child. Okay. And he he's just a, like one of the sickest uh, organists ever. And he's a pretty well-known dude. Like, for the for the last few, I want to say for the last fifteen years or so, he's been playing with Bonnie Raitt, and Dad, he was in he was in the Jerry Hunt Brotherhood for a minute. He he uh, he's just kicked around and played with everyone, but he's like he's kind of a legend, and he's an unbelievably good singer. I have some of his solo records that are pretty hard to find, 
Um, and it's, yeah, this, there's one actually with Picaro that was never released. I had like a test pressing of it. Oh shit. Amazing. And his vocals are insane. And then Gerald Johnson most famously played bass on the Joker, which is like pretty iconic baseline. And then I don't know if, I don't know if he's on that whole record or not. I think he is. He also played with Dave Mason for a while and he, the Crosby stills and Nash, those guys, like it wasn't even just the playing because that was so profound it was the performance, like watching Gerald, if you can find videos of him, do his thing is unbelievable. He was just he, he's just an entertainer on top of being like one of the greatest bass players I've ever heard. Like, wow, this is more than, you know, reaching that place because they're doing that. It's also like keeping these people entertained. Well, and I mean this in the best possible way. And I told this to Sarah Thower as well, but you definitely... You you uh, exude facial expressions when you play drums, so and people love that. I mean, they, they want to see that. I'm not. It's the one thing I kind of liked about the ma- like masking up the last year and a half. Is that, <laughs> like no one can tell. I look like I'm pooping the whole time, so like I'm like biting my lips, and it's it's not good. Every drummer has some version of it. Yeah. So I mean, where you said you watched them, but I mean, did they become? close yeah, family I, with you and yeah, yeah, yeah. i like grew up with those dudes more gerald than mike i mean I'm, I'm, i've known both of them since i was a little kid but yeah i mean i think gerald was maybe my godfather at one point or damn yeah they were always around and, and st- gerald still i still see him every time we go to seattle but they also were like my dad would have my brother and i come sit in you know when we were kids and they'd be playing like you know serious gigs like new year's gigs and stuff like getting paid to do the job sure and my and my dad would be like, yeah, you know, Griff's gonna come sit in tonight, and Mike would just kind of look at him like, oh, he's not. It, it was so it made me realize like, you gotta take this shit seriously because like, sitting with those guys was scary. Like it made me realize like, oh man, this isn't just like well, funny games. Like these dudes are here to fucking grind. So I do want to play a song from your dad. The drums are so rad in this song. What track is that? That's that is Sweat Hog, and that's Things Yet to Come. Okay, so the drummer in that band, it, I, I thought that was him just based on the the top. He's doing all that shit with one hand. His name's Frosty Barry Smith. He just passed a couple of years back, but Frosty. He, he was like my actual first drum teacher. My my dad when I was like started taking it seriously. So they grew up together. They known each other since they were like in third grade, and he flew Frosty out when I was like maybe fifteen for a week and he's like hey you know frosty i want you to just like play with my kid every day and like see if it's you know if he should continue doing this like that was like i remember just every day for for a week sitting with frosty like playing shit and him just giving me pointers and whatnot there's a record my dad made that i don't think ever came out with a band called creation and it's the same sounds and shit and like he he's just perfect on it. Like it's it might as well be quantized. It's perfect. He also kind of famously was in a, a duo with this dude Lee Michaels, which you can you can find those records. Like they had, there's a really rad 
like 18 minute live version of Stormy Monday where, they were, where Frosty takes a solo with his hands. And they were playing like arenas back in the day. They were huge. And it was just a duo. Lee Michaels on organ and Frosty sh- just fucking slamming, dude. My dad always liked to say that Frosty was John Bonham's favorite drummer. I don't know how true that is, but. <laughs> oh, well, you, you said it here, and there's billions of people that listen to this. So now that's, that's history. Yeah. Um, all right. So number two or sorry number four what am i thinking um is your favorite drummer and we already kind of talked about it it's jim keltner yeah but... I, mean, I feel weird even saying that because he's kind of become a he's become a friend and so it's weird to like idolize your bros but um yeah i mean he's he just what he does is really is the most inspiring to me it's, uh, it, like i listen to some it's, and it just gets better with age too like i mean like he got more gear and shit and when you listen to like like how he aged as a drummer. It's like, he didn't try to keep the crazy chops that he had at one point, you know? And he's just so gracefully developed into this like older version of himself that just blows me away. I mean, his ability to like, you know, wear the hat and get into the music, even if it's not his thing, like that is incredible to me. Cause that's something that I struggle with. Like, you know, not that any music's bad, but when you like have, I, we all have discerning tastes. So a lot of times when I go play on records, it's like, this is music's really cool, but it's just not my world. So how do I like embody it, you know? And, and generally I can, but he just does it like immediately. And it, some of the worst records that I've heard Keltner play on have the best playing, in my opinion. <laughs> I want you to name them all right now so you can make some enemies. Um, there was this, the, the drum doctor has like some interview kind of series and at the end of it, he kind of has people play, you know, whatever drums he sets up and they sound beautiful because it's the drum doctor. And it was the first time in a long time that I heard Keltner just kind of let loose with no form. And I'm like, dude, he still has all the chops that he, you know, just so much deeper than like what he can do. Like what, watching him play, it's truly like a religious experience. Yeah. He's, he's got some, he's like transcending. It's like watching Buddha. Just watching like the way he hits the drums or the way that he's interpreting the music is enough for me. It's almost not even what he's playing, you know? Also, he has this uncanny ability to make, the, he can sit down at a drum kit and just make, and it sounds so wildly different than in anyone else that ever has touched those drums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, watching that specific video, I kind of go down a rabbit hole of technique. I'm like, I'll watch this drummer's fingers and what are they doing? How, like, where's their fulcrum? And I've noticed you, you like to choke up quite a bit, which I, I do a lot when I'm trying to play with the same intensity, but softer. And, and him, his, the way he holds sticks for different techniques is so crazy. Yeah. I mean, I've seen him play with like, like Beechwood. Like <laughs> yeah. He'll be playing and then like all of a sudden, you, like without even you noticing, he's like grab, like literally like a branch. I mean, he also just like, he had an amazing career and still has an amazing career. And like, he, I think he's just been able to like develop that sound and he's like gotten himself to a place where like you call Jim to do Jim's thing, you know, you don't call him to like tell him what to play. So he's been able to like just hone this thing. Like there are like a lot of technical drummers that don't necessarily know how to play in the studio. And I really just think it's a matter of like having had the time playing in the studio. So, I mean, he's like probably more comfortable in that situation than anyone. Hey, y'all, I wanted to, (laughs) I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. 
It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the ocean patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was gonna be or if it was gonna be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour. And I didn't keep it and I regretted it ever since then just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time and I just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye well, and you had talked about specifically on when you gave me your list on how he showed you to do less when you're doing the drums and then focus more on overdubs. Yeah, I mean, he didn't actually show me that, but by listening to what he's like, he'll, you know, you put on a Rykuta track and you're like, whoa, it's like a world of sound. Or like there, there's one track that, that you should check out. I should have mentioned it called Water by this band he was in called Attitudes. I actually was going to play that, by the way. I have it as my, yeah. That is the illest feel ever. But when you listen to what he's playing, there's all this shit like exploding around his drum track. And it's not what he's playing live. There, I think there's like a bell tree. There's like definitely some cymbal overdubs happening. There's just like others. There's some shaker shit happening. Like it just didn't realize like, oh, you know what he's track Like, cause you know, when you, if you sit down and to record something and you're thinking, three steps ahead like oh this track's gonna sound great when i play this on the drums and then i overdub this with the percussion to get this kind of groove like when you're starting really just basically with like the drum pass and if you were to like if you were to mute the percussion on some of the tracks that he that he's recorded it's pretty simple you know like he's really keeping a lot of space for these other elements it's so tough because when you want to going to like a more intense part you want to increase the subdivision on your right hand but it's like no just stick with the eighth notes when you go to the ride and then have the tambourine come in to make that it's tough it is tough yeah i mean it's hard to yeah it's hard to to cultivate that type of patience but again i just feel like at least for me it's a matter of just like doing it like it's like rote you know it's like if i can just do it a lot then i know that i can rely on my instincts a little bit more and not like get, you know, pumped up when the chorus hits and increase the velocity or whatever. You just have someone come rub your shoulders like you got this, put a robe on you. Well, let me actually play Drink My Water by Attitudes.
bass drum other thing there. some really cool shit happening there yeah um well i do want to play a, another song that involves keltner and then i kind of want to hear the story surrounding that called him and he came in with an mpc and he had his mpc going stereo out to two um little kalamazoo amps like tiny little amplifiers and we were tracking the song and he was just sitting there with headphones on for like hours programming some shit and then so we like had finished the basic and then he like hit play and recorded it and it was fucking mind-blowing it's exactly what you're we had no idea what he was doing, and it was just like, wow, this is incredible. And I have all the samples because I trigger that stuff live. And, like, it's been fun to dig into what he programmed because some of those, like, there's, like, dog barking in there. I mean, to just sit there and, and watch, just watch Jim go to work. So, I mean, you guys were kind of moving on, and he was just in the corner, just like, I have a vibe, but I'm going to kind of, you know. Yeah, I mean, like, we were kind of doing the thing, like, yeah, tracking it. He was in the control room at one point for a little bit, and then, yeah, he was on the floor just kind of in his own world and then watching him it play you're like oh my god this is this is like truly a, a great mind at work was it sounds he just had in the mpc just there yeah so he like those things are samplers and he got really crazy with his like i, I have one as well and they're amazing samplers but he had like a he was telling me that a long time ago probably 80s or 90s like he had he had this like stereo that he really liked that had I guess like some pre in it that he liked the sound of. He had it modded, so he had like whatever component that he liked out of the stereo taken out of the stereo and put into the MPC, so that when you when you were running your mic into the MPC, it was hitting this compressor or or, or whatever. The yeah, crazy. So he he went pretty deep, but everything he has, I think he's recorded himself. Like all those sounds, he recorded himself. And then I'm sure he's traded some stuff with, with some folks in the past. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. I'd love to have him on the show because I can only imagine what his choices would be. All right. So number five, a record that just hit you at the right time in your life and represents a big piece of your artistry. And and you you gave me a bunch of different options. So, And again, these aren't the ones that Griffin you know specifically chose. I just, this is one of my favorite Steely Dan songs. And I believe you mentioned Purdy later on. So I thought I'd just play this one. That, that's some life-changing shit there. It's a, there's no two ways about it. 
I was young when I got into those records. I like I remember being driven to middle school and being and like being able to sing the Kid Charlemagne solo back to my dad for note. Like that's and that still when I hear that music, I'm just like immediately brought back. But mm-hmm. I think I started playing along with that stuff when I was like 14, 15. Okay. You also said besides the Steely Dan, it was the Stax Volt catalog and so i'm just going to play a barbara stevens song called wait a minute and the drum intro is again it's that kind of a younger me be like you can play that tighter but it's it's the perfect drum intro Is it Al Jackson? Um, so I was looking up the timeline of of that the studios they use, and it's it's implied it's Al Jackson. Yeah, that's a drum sound that I've always chased, and mm-hmm. it seems like they just had like two mics on there. Yeah. All right. Well, let's just go to number number six. So that's a record that informed my tuning style. And yeah, I mean, you gave me a pretty uh, rational answer, which is like. Dude, Ben, I, I do so much, so I don't know how to answer this question. But you did say uh, Desire by Bob Dylan has one of your favorite drum sounds of all time. I had not heard that record. I mean, I, I don't think I know much of the mid-70s Bob. And so I chose Oh Sister. That one's insane. Also, oh, uh, uh, Sarah has got some insane drumming. That guy's a genius. It's like the, some of the best drumming ever. Yeah, I, I had never heard of him, but Howie, Howie Wyeth or Weeth. And this was the song I was talking about earlier where it seems like a mistake. So in the song, he, start, he starts with the fill, and then he's doing the intro where he's doing the snare. And then halfway through the intro, he goes to a cross stick on beat two. What I'm thinking happened is that he thinks that's where the vocals are going to come in, but that the band kept going with the little intro. So then he went back to the snare. So I'm curious if you agree if that's what happened, but I'm, this is all assumption. goes across to here oh shit they're still going let's go back to the snare drum he's setting it up so that the musicians are hearing the music like for the first time that record new morning was that there's a song called sign on my window no, I think Bob's playing piano, and it sounds like at one point the drummer and Bob just couldn't hear each other at all. So they're playing different songs, it's, and it's awesome. I love that stuff, but to me, it's like that's like harder to capture than like some amazing, you know, like super proficient take because especially with Pro Tools, like maybe back in the day when you hear Vinny do something perfect, it's like awe-inspiring. But now it's like anyone can sound perfect. Mm-hmm. And we can do it from our own, like, living room, you know? You're hearing people reacting in real time. And, like, I, to me, that's more interesting. I mean, like, like when I'm in a session, I'm there to do whatever the artist wants. But I prefer, if it's up to me, to, like, usually if I get demos for a record, I'm, like, going to listen once through to make sure there's nothing totally out that I need to practice. 
and then not uh, not again until we're in the studio because I kind of want to just be inspired in the moment and like get that first take, you know, magic if there is any on tape, you know, or, or Pro Tools or whatever. Like I, but they're, they're different strokes for different folks. I know a lot of folks don't aspire to do anything like that, and I get that. Too. Going back to um, each song has its own little world sonically that you try and go to when when you bring. When they say, can you just bring a few snare options? This is more of a gear question. I mean, like, do you have your top three snares? Like, this is going to cover me no matter what? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a tendency to bring way too much shit. So, but I do have, like, three to six snares that are, like, are definitely coming to every session. What are they? Like, like your top three? The one that the drum that's just been blowing my mind lately, and it's not for everything, because I have it tuned kind of more for like brushes or open, like crunchy sound is the bronze superphonic. Oh, okay. Which is kind of insanely good. And, and then I have a little Rogers power tone drum, like a black oyster, which I have super tight, like seventies vibes, which it seems to be the favorite these days. Like, I think that that maybe that's just like what's in, but like tight sounds also, it takes really well to like, reverb or you know if you're gonna put it through a tank or whatever like mm-hmm. less overtones and shit the better it, it responds and then that arbiter drum as you heard on that bahamas youtube video has just got that like insane body and just does that thing and i mean you, i get that out of other drums but this that just really makes it easy yeah i mean to the point where he literally before he starts singing he's like damn that drum sounds amazing so, um, but you did say, and, and this is someone, I mean, that I would probably say is up there with Levon for me is, uh, is Jim Gordon. Oh, yeah. He's the goat. So I do want to play two songs in Jim Gordon. If people don't know Jim Gordon, he's, I mean, you'll, you can put him in the same category as Bernard and Hal, where he's probably 10 of your favorite drummers, but, uh, these are two drastically different sounds. And so the first one is Apostrophe by Frank Zappa, and it's a little more of an open sound for Jim. I mean, I recently listened to You're So Vain again, mm. and I was just like, this is... This is- Perfect. This is a perfect drum take. He's and again, so you you have that, um, and then this little song that is is kind of what I guess most people associate with his his drum sound, a little tighter and more more punchy. As of course, Derek and the Dominoes. Uh, it's such an, I mean, I wouldn't say it's underrated because everyone loves that album, but it's, it's also, it's, I wish we could have gotten more out of those guys. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, Jim Gordon's story is obviously tragic. Very tragic. He's one of the best, man. Another another guy that flips me out is um, Ginger Baker. That obviously, like, he's of all the drummers that are like, you know, when you go into a session, sometimes people lay like some heavy reference on you to like, yeah, we want him to sound like this. Of the like, the two most inimitable drummers are, in my opinion, I mean, aside from like, like raging like metal which just sure yeah yeah <laughs> do that or jazz like of this ginger baker and charlie watts which is which is surprising because he's not charlie watts is like the least chop based drummer but it's just so hard to cop and i think part of that is that maybe he's like following keith i think maybe keith is more driving that shit than charlie which traditionally like a drummer would kind of dictate the groove and band would follow the drummer I don't think that's happening in the Stones, which is why, like, you just can't sound like Charlie Watts without Keith. Well, Griffin, I know um, you have a session today, man, so I don't want to take up a lot of your time, and I've already taken up more than I said I was going to. It was, so, it was such a pleasure, man. I, I love talking to Trump. So I hope we can, if you ever need someone to, like, kick around with you and, uh, like, shoot the shit about whatever, I'm, I'm always down. All right, this week's big fat favorite is from Joe Begale, a.k.a. Otis McDonald. Go check out his episode. Uh, it's incredible. So one of his choices was the album Thrust by Herbie Hancock. The release year is 1974. The key track that he talks about is Palm Grease, and the drummer is Mike Clark. So here is what Joe had to say. When I was in fifth grade, my two older brothers were digging through our father's record collection and stumbled upon a wild album cover. It depicts Herbie Hancock flying a spaceship through another world and his flight controls are keyboards. I was 10 years old, which would mean it was 1993 when I saw this. And at that point, this album was almost 20 years old. I was immediately transported to another time just by looking at this artwork. But when the needle dropped and the first track, Palm Grease, started, my life was forever changed. The track begins with the drums playing a syncopated drum groove, then gradually each layer is introduced, finishing with the bass line before the song moves past the first section. My mind melted. I'd never heard grooves like this or bass lines so melodic yet funky. Every element was so meaningful. I needed to know how it was done, so I fired up my dad's Yamaha keyboard, which had tons of sounds and the ability to multi-track, record, or sequence. I had never recorded anything, and this was my first introduction to many things. I was transcribing, recording, layering, and learning new instruments. And this music was so impactful that I ended up moving to San Francisco Bay Area in search for this funk. 16 years after moving to SF, I took over the same room where this album was recorded, Studio D at Hyde Street Studios. It is now the room where I make all my records. Full circle moment. All right, here is Palm Grease by Herbie Hancock. Thank you. 
show if you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews do that it helps more people find the show so it'll get bigger and better and hopefully i'll have a chance to sell out one day but you'll be an og listener that can brag to all your friends anyways why don't you go and check us out at bigfatsnaredrum.com and follow us on all the socials just search for big fat snare drum and you will find us the show is edited in part using isotope rx audio editor it's amazing so go check that out at isotope.com And thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye.